Well, hey, you're listening to the Resonate Church Monmouth Sermons Podcast. Whether you're a part of the Resonate family or you're just a friend of ours tuning in, we're so glad that you're here. We are a church here in Monmouth, Oregon that exists for the college campus and our broader community. So if you'd like to learn more or get further connected, head over to resonate.net slash Monmouth. Otherwise, hope you enjoy today's sermon. Have you ever had a moment in your life where somebody texts you the words, hey, we need to talk? We need to talk. Or, or, or they text you the words, they start a conversation, I gotta tell you something. And you're like, heart drops? You get all tense? You're like, what are you gonna say? Any, anyone ever had that moment? Just me? Maybe somebody starts the conversation that way. Hey, Ben, I gotta tell you something, man. And you're like, oh my gosh, what's about to happen? Uh, right, depending on who tells you, who texts you that, who, who says those words to you, you might come to different conclusions about what they're going to say. So if you heard those words in middle school, maybe, from your middle school girlfriend, maybe like I did, <laughs> I, I jumped to the conclusion that this was the beginning of the end of this, this middle school relationship. <laughs> ben, we need to talk. Uh, real talk, I, I hear these words today. My mom texts me, hey, Ben. I need to talk to you. Can I call you? I kind of immediately go, oh my gosh, is, is grandma okay? Oh my gosh, like is, is dad okay? Like what's going on, right? Jump to that conclusion. Uh, maybe if you hear that from a friend, you kind of get a pit in your stomach. You're like, oh my gosh, did I hurt you? Did I do something uh, wrong? Did I, did I miss an expectation with you? If your friend says that to you, if my wife says that to me, I might think, oh man, did I forget to put on deodorant today? Did I, uh, do I have something in my teeth? What's going on here, right? So uh, we, we've all probably experienced that moment where we've gotten that text or somebody begins a conversation with us saying, hey, I need to tell you something, or hey, can we talk? And, and what's gonna happen tonight as we get into Matthew chapter seven, as we get to the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus of Nazareth's lengthiest teaching in the entire Bible, in, in all of history, we're gonna see this moment where Jesus has a little bit of a, hey, I need to talk to you. I need to tell you something, conversation with us. Um, He's gonna bring some truth for us. He's gonna bring some challenge for us. And and we're gonna see in Matthew chapter seven that these are some of the most challenging words in the entire Bible. Jesus says things like destruction. He talks about firewood. Um, He talks about judgment. He talks about, uh, he calls people fools, right? So some challenging words from Jesus tonight. So I'm telling you this on the front end so that you, you don't necessarily maybe like get tensed up and then close your ears off, but so that, we can all tense up together and, and then realize that, that Jesus loves us enough to, to tell us the thing that we need to hear, even if it's hard for us to hear in moments. So that's going to be where we're headed tonight. Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to stroll down, um, pick up where we left off last week in verse 13. So Matthew 7, verse 13. <clears throat> so this is the end of Jesus' sermon. Verse 13, he says, narrow, or sorry, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree can't bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Uh, Next kind of section here, this section's uh, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So Jesus doesn't invite the piano player out and get all emotional on us. He just mic drop. That's, that's the Sermon on the Mount. That's it. And then Matthew includes these last two verses. When Jesus finished what he was saying, he finished his sermon, the crowds were just astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Not as their scribes. <clears throat> Ooh, Okay. Big, big picture for a second. Let's zoom out, big picture. Uh, for the last three months or so, we've been seeing Jesus cast a vision for what his kingdom is like. So, so we said this everywhere for the, last, for the last nine weeks, last 10 weeks. We've been saying every week as we get into the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is like a kingdom manifesto. It's Jesus saying, here's what my kingdom looks like. Here's what it looks like when people submit to me as king. And what we've identified is that it's kind of an upside-down kingdom. It, it doesn't look like any other kingdom. It, it doesn't look like any other culture, right? So, so our culture might say, hey, if you, if you have a difficult relationship, just cancel that person. You don't need them in your life. Get them out of your life. Just, just cancel culture, right? Jesus says, in my kingdom, there's a reconciliation culture. If you have hardship in a relationship, you reconcile. Uh, our world might say, hey, you should use other people for your pleasure and your happiness. And Jesus says, No. You should love other people and not lust after them, right? We've seen that it's an upside-down kingdom. But as Jesus comes to a close here, he gives us his final words, his sermon conclusion. He switches gears. He switches gears. Uh, No longer is Jesus casting a vision for what life in his kingdom looks like. But what we see him doing is, is presenting us with a fork in the road decision to make a fork-in-the-road decision to make. You see, four times, we're, we're gonna walk through these in a, in a moment, four times Jesus gives us these uh, pictorial contrasts, these four this-or-that's with Jesus, right? So he says, first, literally, there's, there's a fork in the road. There, there's this road or there's this road. Which one are you gonna choose? Which path are you gonna go down? Th- then he says, there, there's two kinds of trees that, that bear different kinds of fruit. Which kind of tree are you gonna be, man? Then he goes on to say, there's two groups of people in the end who will come to me. There's this group and there's this group. I'm going to have very different responses to both groups. Which group are you going to be a part of? And then lastly, there's two kinds of foundations for building a house, rock and sand. Which one are you going to choose? Right? We see Jesus presenting us 
with these contrasts to say there's a fork in the road. There's a fork in the road. And, and what we begin to see here in each of these four contrasts and each, each of these four illustrations is really the same truth that Jesus is illustrating. And, and here's what it is tonight. This is like base level 3 a.m. principle of the sermon tonight. It's this. Sitting idly by and trying to remain neutral with Jesus is not an option. Sitting idly by, twiddling your thumbs, trying to remain neutral with Jesus is not an option. It's not an option. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor, author of the Chronicles of Narnia and so many other great books, Jesus follower, C.S. Lewis said this about Jesus. He said, looking at Jesus' life, Jesus produced mainly three effects. When, when people interacted with Jesus, there were kind of three effects you saw in the Gospels. You saw either hatred, Jesus, I want to kill you. You saw tear, that primarily came from the demons. They're like, Jesus, you're, you're going to end us, just make it quick, please. I'm scared of you. That's the demons, they're afraid of him. And then adoration. Jesus, I'll do anything for you. Lewis says, there was no trace of people expressing mild approval of Jesus. There's no trace of that. So, so the conclusion we come to here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is that every person must decide what to do with Jesus. A choice is demanded. A choice is demanded. The two choices are this. Either on this side, follow Jesus and submit to his reign and rule. Become a disciple of Jesus. Submit to his reign and rule. Live under his lordship. Or follow someone or something else. Be a disciple of someone else. Like, let's be real. We're all following someone. We're all, becoming a, we're all being a disciple of someone. The, the option is clear. You can follow Jesus. You can be a disciple of Jesus, or you can follow someone or something else. Those are the two options that we see Jesus giving us here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, thing is, when, when we come to this, there's a bit of an elephant in the room, if we're honest. A bit of an elephant in the room. You guys know what an elephant in the room is? I brought a picture. I don't know what's going on in this picture, but I thought it was funny. I'm like, these people look very professional, so I don't know if it's a husband and wife trying to figure some stuff out and they have some marital tension or if it's just coworkers and maybe they don't like each other. That's the elephant in the room. Not sure what it is. Um, theologian, philosopher, who, who's wrote an incredible book on the Sermon on the Mount, Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard says, there's an elephant, not in the room, but there's an elephant in the church. And the elephant in the church is non-discipleship. Non-discipleship. So, so what he's saying is that um, there's, there's this awkward thing. Uh, this is awkward, right, elephant in the room? There's this awkward reality that so many of our churches, that, that like church culture, maybe specifically in the West, specifically in America, it settles for that mild approval of Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, I'm, I'm cool with what you say. Yeah, I'm chilling. I'm chilling with you, Jesus. But then it never goes a step further. Right, churches, we, we, we spin our wheels making church attendees, small group attendees, people who can execute programs. But Dallas Willard is saying, yeah, but, but what about like being formed by Jesus? What about becoming students of Jesus? What about being disciples? What about disciples making disciples? That's the elephant in the church. And the way Dallas Willard articulates this, he calls it vampire Christianity. So I brought this on the screen. Here's what van, uh, vampire Christianity or non-discipleship looks like. 
It looks like this. Jesus, I would like a little bit of your blood, please. Uh, Jesus, you died for me, and you died to purchase the forgiveness of sins. I'd like that part of you, Jesus, please. But I don't really care to be your student or have any of your character. In fact, I'd like to just kind of get forgiveness and then let me live my life the way I want to live my life, and then, Jesus, I'll see you in heaven one day. And the question Dallas poses is, is that really acceptable to Jesus? And I think he tells us here in chapter seven of Matthew, no, no. It's, it's either, Jesus, I want all of you for who you are, or Jesus, I want none of you. Those, those are the two options. A choice is demanded. So what we're gonna do is walk through each of these four pictures, and we're gonna see Jesus articulate what it looks like in the life of the disciple, and then what it looks like in the life of the non-disciple. So the life of the disciple articulated in these four pictures, and then by contrast, we'll see the life of the non-disciple. You tracking? Yeah? Okay. Wasn't sure how confusing that was. <laughs> okay. So first, verses 13, 14, Jesus gives us the first fork in the road. And we see this, number one, there's a path. There's a path. So Jesus starts articulating, number one, the path of the disciple. It's narrow. It's hard. It's the road less traveled. The path of the disciple. So first thing Jesus says, two roads, which will you choose? He tells us, okay, you got two roads. One of the roads over here, it kind of looks like I-5 a little bit, right? It's simple, it's straightforward, not a lot of twists and curves. There's signs telling you where to go. You look left, you look right, there's a lot of room, a lot of lanes on the road. There's a lot of other cars traveling down the road. You get somewhere fast that you need to go. It's convenient. It's the path of least resistance. Now, caveat, I'm not talking about up north where there's traffic. Let's just imagine there's no traffic on I-5, right? Imagine there's no traffic on I-5 or it's, or it's minimized. It's the path of least resistance. You get where you're going fast. It's comfortable. It's simple. Jesus says that path leads to destruction. It leads to destruction and death. But then he says there's another path, and this is the path of the disciple. And the other path uh, looks maybe more like a, a backcountry road. It's, it's twisty. There's a lot of turns. It's not so simple. It's difficult to reverse at points. You, you get to that point where you, you make a left turn and your, your phone stops working, your GPS turns off, and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm screwed, right? <laughs> I'm illustrating here. You get on the road and there's not a lot of cars out there and you're wondering, was this road paved just for me? It, has anyone else ever driven on this road? Maybe you ask a question, this is too confusing, this is too complex, should I just go back to the interstate? It's the backcountry road. At points, it might feel like the path of most resistance. Jesus says that road leads to life. That road leads to life, true life. And so Jesus is articulating the the road, the path, again, of the disciple, of the Christian, the person who follows Christ, the person who is to be a student of Jesus. And he's saying it's narrow, this path is narrow because there's only one way to get on the path. And the way is through Jesus. Jesus, in another place in the scriptures, says that he is the gate. 
You can only enter into the kingdom through him. So so the path is narrow, according to Jesus, because there's one way in. There's not many on-ramps to get to God. There's one on-ramp to get to God. Jesus says it's through me. So we come to Jesus, we come to Christianity, we come to the scriptures, and we realize there's no such thing as universalism, right? This picture of, hey man, all religions are basically the same, it's just like God's up on a mountain and there's just many ways to get up there. Jesus says, no, no, the one true God who made everything is on the mountain, but none of us could ever get to him because we're all broken. So that God had to come down to us, that's what Jesus did. The only way to access him is to trust in what Jesus did on our behalf. It's narrow. There's one way in. It's hard because our flesh, the devil, and the world say, don't follow Jesus, follow your heart. Man, don't listen to God, do whatever you wanna do. It's hard. And then it's it's the road less traveled because the ways of God, the ways of his kingdom, they don't look like the ways of the world. And although the ways of the kingdom lead to life and lead to human flourishing, the world looks at the ways of the kingdom and says, that's ridiculous. That doesn't make any kind of sense. So the road of the disciple, the path of the disciple, will never be the most popular. It's the road less traveled and few will find it, says Jesus. The choice is which road you're going to embark on. You're going to take I-5, you're going to go on the backcountry road. The choice is up to you. Will you follow Jesus or will you follow someone or something else. It's the choice. So Jesus keeps going. He starts talking like a botanist in the next few verses. We see in verse uh, 17, 18 specifically, Jesus starts saying that, that there's something um, that the disciple will bear, the number two fruit of the disciple, the fruit of the disciple. He says it's visible, it's good, it's recognizable. So again, he gives us two options. They're two kind of trees. Um, now, I'll admit this on the front end. My only really bad grade in high school was biology. Like, really bad grade. I barely got by. It was biology. So, anybody here knows anything about science or biology, you got me beat by a long shot. But even for me, really bad grade in biology, I'm talking like D minus territory. Um, even this makes sense to me when Jesus says in verse 17, 18, Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees, bad fruit. I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I, I, I can understand that one, biology teacher. Good trees, healthy trees bear good fruit. Unhealthy plants, unhealthy trees either don't bear fruit or bear bad fruit. That, that makes a ton of sense. Fruit tells you what kind of tree you're looking at, right? Fruit tells you what kind of tree you're looking at. Um, so, so contextually, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but Jesus begins this little section, as, as you read it again, uh, with a warning to beware of false prophets. Um, there, there are a lot of warnings throughout the New Testament, throughout the whole Bible, uh, calling God's people to, to be aware, to, to watch out for false teachers or false prophets. Uh, Jesus' little earthly brother named Jude actually wrote an entire book in the New Testament all about false teaching, so you, you could read that if you want. Um, but this is important. You see Jesus uh, call these, these false prophets wolves. And, and what he's getting at is basically these would be people who would attempt to garner influence or leadership in the church, not to love the church, the sheep, but to harm the sheep, to harm the church, to benefit themselves. So, so this picture of people who uh, really might say, be saying, hey, I want to be a leader, but it's really just to serve themselves. 
or saying, hey, I, I wanna lead people, but really it's not about you leading anybody or loving anybody. It's about you just elevating your own position, your own status. Jesus is saying, uh, beware of that. But what's so helpful, I, I love this about Jesus. Jesus isn't like, hey, there's false prophets out there, there's false teachers out there, good luck. You know, just have a general distrust of any leader you ever meet because, you know, you never know if you're gonna meet. No, Jesus says, you can identify them. You can see who they are. Verse 17, you will recognize them by their fruits. <laughs> just like their, their fruit will tell the picture. Their fruit will tell the story. So Jesus says, how do you tell the difference between sheep and wolves in sheep, sheep's clothing? Well, you, you look at their diet, right? How, how do you tell a sheep from a wolf in sheep's clothing? Don't, don't look at what they're saying. Look at what they're eating, if you will. Look at their actions. What are they doing? Dallas Willard says, what they do on this verse will be the unerring sign of who they are on the inside. What they do will be the unerring sign of who they are on the inside. So Jesus says, hey, you don't really gotta worry about it. Just, just let their fruit tell the story. And so in this, um, there, there is a call for us. I, I, I don't wanna skip over this. There is a call for us to have discernment when it comes to following teachers or following people with authority, especially inside the church. Uh, this is why, when, when you like listen to me or you listen to anyone teaching you the Bible or teaching you anything about the ways of God, you should have a discerning ear. You should have a discerning ear and be able to identify like what's the fruit of that person's life. I want you to hold me accountable to that. And that's, I want other people to be able to hold me accountable to that. And so uh, there is a call here for us to have discernment. There's also a call for us to say like, hey, if I'm a leader, why am I leading? You know, am I, like, am I becoming a false prophet or false teacher to, to elevate myself or something? There's a call here for humility. But the underlying principle, to get back to uh, the, the focus here, the underlying principle is that we will all bear fruit of some kind. Or, or maybe, again, if we're an unhealthy tree, we're a bad tree, there will be no fruit. But, but Jesus will say uh, that the fruit tells the picture of what's going on. And so what he's saying here about his disciples, his followers, is that my disciples will be good trees. My disciples will be good trees. Why? Because they're connected to me, the vine. They'll be connected to me, the source of life, the source of all goodness. My disciples will be good trees, and because of it, they will bear visible fruit. It's going to be visible. Fruit hangs on the branches above the ground. And so we have these moments, right, where we look at fruit and it visibly tells us what the roots look like under the ground. I can't see what's going on underneath the ground when I look at a garden, but I look at the fruit and that tells the picture. So if, if someone is not bearing any fruit in their lives, it should cause us to go, okay, what's happening at the root level? If, if someone is bearing bad fruit, we should ask the question, what's happening at the root level? Are they connected to the vine, the source of life, Jesus? What's going on? Second, they will bear good fruit, good, and good as defined by Jesus and God's goodness. So the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Is this person increasingly displaying character and actions that reflect the heart of God and the character of God? The fruit of the Spirit's a great list to look at, to identify those things. And then uh, thirdly, they will be recognizable. This is kind of obvious, goes with the other ones. 
But, but Jesus says in, in John chapter 15, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. So in the same way we look at apples and we go, that's an apple tree, we, we should look at supernatural, spirit of God, manifested love in the people of God and go, that's a Jesus tree. <laughs> recognizable. It's recognizable. So to be clear in this, I want to say this. This is not a call to manufacture fruit in your life. It's not a call to try really hard to grow branches and grow fruit. No, it's, it's a call to abide in the vine. It's a call to get with Jesus. Jesus says himself, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. We got to worry about abiding and let him take care of the bearing fruit part. But he will if we abide. The choice... The decision is, will you follow him? Will you adhere to him? Will you abide in him? Or, or will you follow and adhere and abide someone else, something else? That's the choice. Uh, next section, we're, we're keeping moving here. We'll try to be fast on these. Starting in verse 21, we see now Jesus talk about the heart of the disciple, the, the inner motivations and desires. So the heart of the disciple, Jesus says, uh, he, will, he won't be a means to an end, but the end in himself. So that's what the heart of a disciple looks like. Again, there are two options here. Um, two, two groups of people. And to one group, Jesus gives some of the most chilling words in all scripture. Like I, I read these words and I, I feel a sense of like trembling. In the end, at the final judgment, they'll come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord. Jesus, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. Jesus, look what I did for you. And Jesus is gonna turn to them and say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Chilling, chilling words. This shows us that, that there's a significant difference between doing Christian activities and actually knowing Christ. There's a sobering warning that says you can do a lot of church things. You can hang out with church people. You can even like lead ministry and do really good things in your life and the whole while miss Jesus himself. Uh, to illustrate this, I, I heard an older follower of Jesus talking a few years ago. He's probably in his 40s or 50s. And he talked about his experience growing up in the South in what people sometimes call the Bible Belt. So there's, there's just a lot of churches everywhere, and uh, I've heard, I've, I've never actually been myself, but I've, I've heard this reality where most people, people would identify and, and call themselves Christians, whether or not they actually follow Jesus or whether or not they're actually like part of a church or anything. Um, there's just this like cultural Christianity everywhere. And he talked about uh, being a younger guy and being in a church, being a part of this church, and one day he meets this businessman who starts kind of attending uh, the church that he was a part of. And so he got, he got to know this businessman, and he, he came to find out that this businessman had no real interest in Jesus at all. But he knew that if he went to church and identified with Jesus, it would mean that his business would be enhanced. Why? Because people would look at him in the South and say, you, might, you must be an upright person if you go to church. I'll do business with you. So what, he, what was he doing? He was approaching Jesus as a means to boost his entrepreneurial success. He was using Jesus as a means to an end, saying, Jesus, you are helpful for me. I would like to add you into my life. 
thank you. Jesus says, no, that's not the heart of my disciples. The heart of my disciples is, I'm not a means to an end. I'm the end in myself. So, so cultural American Christianity might say, it's helpful for me to identify with Jesus. My life is benefited by Jesus. That's what cultural American Christianity says. Um, mind you, there are places in the world where identifying with Jesus will mean your physical safety is threatened right now. Not, that is not a reality for where we live. So cultural Christianity says, my life is benefited by Jesus. Biblical Christianity, the heart of the disciple, according to Jesus, says, Jesus, I don't know what I would do without you. Jesus, you're not beneficial to my life. You are my life. That's the heart of the disciple. So, so friends, th- this might seem scary to those of us who say we're Christians. Like, we come to this and like, wait, I, I think I am, but am I really not a Christian? Like, is Jesus telling me to doubt my salvation? Um, I, I think two things at play here. On the one hand, yes, th- these verses should cause us to like be humbled and to instill a fear of the Lord in us and cause us to examine ourselves, cause us to ask questions like, why am I here? Why, why am I here at Sunday gathering? Why am I here in village? Why am I here in a huddle? Is it, am I just here because this is where my friends go? Am I just here because I grew up this way? This is what my family does? Am I just here because it means cheap rent for me to live with these people? Am I here for any reason other than just to love Jesus and to worship Jesus and to know Jesus and see that other people can get those things too? So it should cause us to examine ourselves. On the other hand, if you are a follower of Jesus, don't allow this to put you in a place of anxiety or, uh, or paralyzation to cause you to doubt your salvation but yeah, it should instill like a healthy fear of the Lord in us. It should push us to affirm our love and allegiance to Jesus. And guess what? We can repent and experience his grace where our, mo- where our motivations do get messed up. He gives us that opportunity. So the choice, will you decide that Jesus is your ultimate treasure, your supreme satisfaction, or will you use him as a means to get whatever it is you actually want? That's, that's the choice. And then the last one, um, number four, the foundation of the disciple. The foundation of the disciple. And it's, it's simple. The foundation of the disciple is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. In this picture, really, Jesus is illustrating um, best, I think, what, what the other three are also illustrating. He says there's only two kinds of foundations for us to build our, the lives of our houses on. Um, and we, as you may know, Jesus would know this well as a person who was a carpenter. Uh, the foundation of a house is incredibly important for the integrity of the house, the strength of the house. And he's saying you can either build your life, your house, on something that's flimsy, on something that's shaking and shifting, or you can build your life, your house, on something that's solid, the rock. And that's Jesus, who's eternal, who's never changing, and who's for our ultimate good. So to illustrate this, uh, building your house on the sand, here's what building your house on the sand looks like, according to Jesus. It looks like when uh, I'm hanging out maybe in our living room, our kitchen, and I look over and one of my kids, one of our toddlers, thinks that I'm not looking at him. And he's about to do something he knows he shouldn't do. 
So he's about to do it, but just, you know, last second, just want to double check. He looks over his shoulder, and he sees dad staring at him. And I kind of give him that look, you know, hey, you know, you know what's up? You shouldn't be doing this. And, uh, and I see his eyes start to sparkle, you know? <laughs> it's, it's like all of a sudden, these like flames start to rise up in his eyes, and it's like, oh, it's on, dad. It's on. <laughs> and I keep staring him down. Maybe the words actually come out of my mouth like, boy, you know better than that. And he keeps staring at me, and he almost nods as if to say, I hear you. And then he does it anyways. <laughs> he does it anyways. Jesus says, uh, the person who hears my words and does not do them is like the person who builds their house on the sand. Dad, I hear you, but I'm chill. I'm going to do my own thing. Jesus, I hear you, but I'm chill. I'm going to do my own thing. The foundation of the disciple is simply Jesus. You are my authority. (laughs) Jesus, you are Lord. You are my master. Jesus, if you and I have a disagreement in life, uh, I'm not the one who's right. I'm the one who's wrong. You're the one who's right. Um... Years ago, uh, one, of, one of the other pastors in our network of churches, he was talking about how Carrie Underwood has messed us all up. You know? Jesus, take the wheel. Yeah. He's like, Carrie's messed us up. Um, right? Jesus, take the wheel. What that song insinuates is, uh, hey, Jesus, I'm good driving the car of my life until I get in a bad spot. If I get in a bad spot, my car starts spinning then you can take the wheel. You can go ahead and drive. And what we see Jesus articulating is, uh, my disciples don't say, Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) My disciples don't even say, Jesus is my co-pilot. You ever seen that bumper sticker? Nope. No, that's not not what Jesus' disciples say. Uh, Jesus' disciples don't even say, Jesus, uh, you can drive, but I'll I'll be a backseat driver. Okay? You drive Jesus, but I'll be in the backseat uh, giving you directions, telling you where to... No. The, the idea here is, is Jesus is Lord means, Jesus, you drive the car of my life, I'll just go ahead and get in the trunk and stay there. Because uh, I'll probably be a really bad backseat driver. You don't want me sitting shotgun because I'll be freaking out at you. I'll just chill in the trunk and let you do your thing with my life because it's yours anyways. Jesus is Lord. Everyone will make someone or something their master, their authority. And Jesus says you can build your life on sinking sand. You can have an identity and a foundation that will crumble in the end. Or you can build your life on him and his promises and his words. Which will you choose? Which will you choose? So that's it. It's the Sermon on the Mount tonight. Uh, I just want to end and say, um, yeah, right? Jesus has been incredibly honest with us tonight in this passage. Um, Jesus comes to us and says, hey, I, I got to tell you something. Ball's in your court, and it puts some pressure on us, right? He says, everyone will wind up on one of two paths. Everyone will end up being one of two trees. Everyone will end up being in this group or this group. Jesus will respond to them very differently, and everyone will build their lives on something. Um, the thing is, right, 
uh, you and I will make a lot of decisions in our lives. Laying before you, there are a lot of huge decisions that you will need to make in the near future, probably. Decisions like, what career am I going to pursue? Decisions like, where am I going to live? Decisions like, who are my friends going to be? Decisions like, who am I going to marry? Am I going to get married? What's that going to look like? Decisions like, what's the future of my family going to look like? Those are all monumental decisions, huge decisions. But, but none of them, listen to me, none of them have eternal consequences. They're big decisions. None of them have consequences that will mean something in 10,000 years from now. Jesus says, unless you submit to me, unless you come into a relationship with me, unless you follow me in my ways, you're headed towards destruction and damnation. Strong words. But they illustrate bad news. The bad news is this. God made us. The story of God is that God made us to know his light, his life, and his love. His light, his life, and his love. That's why God made us. And yet all of us, every single one of us, we've turned from him. And that's what sin is. And so the natural consequences of turning from light, life, and love is that we experience darkness, death, and isolation. Darkness, death, and disconnection, isolation. The absence of the manifest loving presence of God. And that's what hell is. That's what the essence of hell is. That's the bad news. But Jesus here, who isn't just a teacher, but who is God in the flesh, says, I don't want you to experience darkness, death, and disconnection any longer. My kingdom is available. My kingdom of light is available. My life that I can offer you is available. Connection with me and intimacy with the God who made you is available. That's why I have come. There's good news available. And the reason he can make this offer to you and I is because after he preached this sermon, Jesus climbed down into the pit of darkness, of death, and of disconnection. He climbed on the cross on purpose because he wanted to. He climbed on the cross and experienced the darkness of evil in our place. He made the evil uh, that, that we've all succumbed to, the evil inside of us, covered him. He climbed on the cross and made our death, the death that we deserve because of our wages of sin, he made that his death and spread his arms out and died for us. And he experienced the disconnection that we should experience for all eternity. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced darkness, death, and disconnection so that if you and I would trust him, we could know light, life, and love like we were made to know. He did that for you. He did it because of his great love for you. So listen, I don't know where you're at tonight. If you're here and you say, I'm a follower of Jesus. If you're here and you say, I'm not sure where I'm at with Jesus. If you're here and you say, I definitely uh, am not a follower of Jesus. My, my plea, my pleading to all of us here tonight, we're all in the same boat. Here's my plea for you. My plea is follow Jesus. <laughs> follow Jesus. 
If you haven't made that decision, you've been wrestling with it, and you, you felt like God prompting you to make that decision, but something's holding you back, follow Jesus. He's asking you to submit your entire life to him, and that's costly, but there's nothing better than knowing the life that he offers. Follow Jesus. If you're, if you're uh, not sure where you're at with Jesus, make that decision to follow Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I would just say, keep on the narrow path. Keep on the narrow path. Keep in step with the Spirit. When the resistance seems as if it's getting higher, follow Jesus. Uh, Listen, if you you wanna talk to me or talk to anyone uh, in this space tonight about making this decision, even maybe for the first time, I would love to talk to you. One of our staff members, one of our village leaders, one of our owners would love to talk to you. So listen, um, there's a decision that lays before us all. It's yours to make. Your friends can't make it for you. Your parents can't make it for you. Only the spirit of God can work something into you. You have to make it for yourself. So what decision will you make? Let's pray.